I've got to continue my spectacular career so that Spider-Man will read about my exploits and try to attack me again. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things The Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through Amazing Spider-Man number 12, Unmasked by Dr. Octopus. If you haven't already, please like, comment, subscribe, and review as your opinions, both good and bad, matter not only to me, but the curious folks outside of our listening community who may be swayed by your opinions to join in. Shout out to the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. To you I say I see you, and I thank you for your support. And to you all I say, we've got a GD menagerie in this one. We've got lions and tigers and bears and spiders and octopi and oh my god is that King Kong? We've got round three with 008 and Spider Pete with no mask faced and more excitement than the statement action pack could ever promise. And we've got me, we've got you, we've got No further ado, we've got the Amazing Spider-Man number 12, Unmasked by Dr. Octopus. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. So the credits on this one, we have Smiling Stan Lee writing, we have Winging Steve Ditko on art. And we got Art, it's in the name, Simic. Welcome back, Art Simic, and Art Simic is doing the lettering. The cover of this one, we have the title, The Amazing Spider-Man and Spidey New Roman atop the webbing as always. The lettering is red with blue shadowing. We've got a goldenrod background on this one, so you already know I'm gearing up for a slugfest, and I won't be disappointed if the cover is any indication. In the foreground, clockwise from stage left, we see a police officer, SJB colored police uniform with a look of disbelief on his face, next to none other than J. Jonah Jameson himself. He's wearing a brown hat and blazer with a green tie, and his right fist is clenched. On his face, pure shock. There are wrinkled lines above his eyebrows. JJ is drawn beautifully here. There's another officer beside JJ, his back to us, probably Bill Tomas. And if that's Tomas, you know the police cap next to it is being worn by Blow for Blow Joe. Beside the police cap, we see the off-kidnapped but never-distressed damsel, Betty Brent. Her brunette hair in a flawless bob, as usual. She's wearing a bronze-colored blouse with an interlocking ring design and has her left hand to her mouth with concern and fear in her eyes. There's a final police officer beside her. He can't believe what he's seeing. In the background of the cover, stage right, we see none other than 008, the one-man hands team, Dr. Otto Octavius, a.k.a. Dr. Octopus. His bow haircut is a little ragged. He's in need of a barber, but something tells me Ock's not a man who cares about fashion. He's wearing a green long sleeve shirt and green slacks with his construction tins and, as always, his Kanye shades. He has both his hands curled into fists, his left out in front of him, his right raised triumphantly. I'm convinced, at this point, Dr. Puss's fleshy arms are just around for decoration because while they're celebrating his victory, we see his metal arms working. All four of them are stretched out in front of him, a good 10 feet away, as they hold a splayed out Spider-Man in their grip. R1, that's the upper metal arm, right side, is gripping Spidey's left bicep. R2, the webhead's left thigh. L2, that's the lower left metal arm, is gripping Spidey's right bicep. 
and L1 is doing the unthinkable. In the clutches of the three-pronged metal arm, we see none other than Spidey's mask. Akaz unmasked our hero in front of the last two people he ever wanted to know his secret identity. If you want to see fear on faces drawn right, you have got to see Spidey's face on this cover. His mouth wide, his head thrown back, his eyes are pinpoints in his head as they stare in horror, upside down, into the eyes of J. Jonah Jameson. Just in case anybody thinks this is a wild fever dream, a giant blue caption box tells us different. Not a dream, not an imaginary tale. You'll gasp in amazement when Peter is unmasked by Dr. Octopus. This is a dynamic, beautiful cover. And we're off. Page one is set in a white negative space. On top, we've got the sign of the spider, Spider-Man's name curved inside of its borders. And to its right, the title on this one, Unmasked by Dr. Octopus. In the center of the page, we see the golden liability, Spider-Pete, suited and booted with his head down, the fear and surprise on his face from the cover replaced with an eyes closed look of defeat. He's clutching his mask in his right hand, and I'm gonna guess this is after 008 ripped his mask off. We have four number pictures surrounding Spidey. The first, labeled one, is an image of Dr. Octopus standing slightly squatted with his mechanical arms stretching out wide in front of him. Next to the number one, it reads, Take one of the most powerful supervillains of all time. Next to the number two, we have another caption box. At a spine-tingling assortment of wild beasts on the rampage. Beneath it, we see a large black bear on its hind feet. Beside it, the biggest of the big cats, a lion, walking forward. Next to the lion, if you're expecting a tiger, no way. We see a large brown gorilla hanging from the side of a building. Back on stage right, we get the third label. Mix well with our usual cast of offbeat characters. Beneath it, we have four headshots. First, Betty Brant staring up at Spider Pete with a look of wide-eyed concern. Next to her, Aunt May smiling with closed eyes up at Spidey Pete. Beneath Betty, we get a headshot of the Brand X kid himself. It's a great headshot. He's staring out of the corner of his eye with, dare I say, an expression of jealousy on his face. I dare. You do? Oh yeah. And I think the headshot next to him, that of the lovely Liz Allen, is his reason for the salt. She's staring up at the goldenrod liability with a look we've never seen. If I didn't know any better, I'd say she was feeling the kid. The final number panel reads, and top it off with the expose of Spider-Man, who could ask for anything more. And beneath it, we see JJ the tie Raider working. He's in a white collar shirt, his red tie loose. He's sitting in front of a typewriter, a cigar clenched in his teeth, smoke rising from the cigar towards the caption box. There's a pinup of Spider-Man's head on the wall behind him in case JJ's lacking inspiration, but I doubt it. He's so angry, he's only typing with his right hand and shaking an angry left fist. Beneath Spider-Pete's feet, we get a yellow screen caption box telling us that Stan and Steve pulled out all the stops to make this a memorable issue, and the least we can do is enjoy it and rave about it. And you know something? We have a hunch you will. Here's a final caption box touting the credits on this one. Written in the white heat of inspiration by Stan Lee. Drawn in a wild frenzy of enthusiasm by Steve Ditko. Lettered in a comfortable room by Art Simek. Man said Stan had a fever dream for this one. Let's get into it. Page two opens as it often does with a caption box. As all of our well-read readers know, Spider-Man battled Dr. Octopus last issue. And while the amazing teenager foiled the supervillain's plans, he was unable to prevent his escape. Hence these headlines in the bugle. And we see beneath it a daily bugle cover. On its left, a picture of Spidey's head in profile. On its right, a picture of Dr. Octopus eyes grilling us straight on. The headline reads, Dr. Octopus escapes from Spider-Man. And beneath it, we get a column telling us that Spidey has once again interfered in police business. And because of it, another dangerous criminal has escaped. The column goes on to ask how much longer we as a people will allow Spidey to make a mockery of justice. Believe me, Daily Bugle, Spidey ain't the one out here making a mockery of justice. You should see the headlines in the papers from last week in the real world. Next panel, we see Spidey crawling down the sheer wall of the Daily Bugle. 39th Street, 2nd Avenue, Midtown. Limestone building, you can't miss it. Lights are glowing softly in the window, Spidey's scaling past, and Spidey is pissed. He's thinking, if I put out a forest fire single-handed, I'll bet Jonah would rat me for wasting too much water.
Say, what's going on in his office? And we hear someone scream they quit from an office window, telling the person they're screaming at that nobody could work for a tyrant like them. I know and you know who that is, but just to be sure, we're gonna keep going. Spidey crawls up to JJ's office window, eavesdropping as he often does, and we see JJ, white shirt, brown pants, his arms wide, screaming at the back of a cherry blonde haired woman wearing a green blouse and blue skirt. JJ's saying she can't do this, that he needs a secretary. And Cherry tells him, you need a lot more than that. You need a psychiatrist. She's throwing the papers in her hands on the floor and she's getting out of there. The next panel, we get a great panel of Jameson tie rating. He's loosened his red tie and he's rummaging through his filing cabinet. He says, hmm, blamed employees. They expect to be treated with kid gloves just because I shouted at her. Dick Cole's drawing two heads to show JJ whipping his neck around quickly, and when he does, he sees none other than Betty Brant. She's in a stylish purple jacket with matching skirt, her pink clutch bag, and pearls around her neck. She tells Jameson she's returned if he'll still have her. And JJ, busy man, way past busy enough, tells her not to just stand there and orders her to get back to work. Spidey, watching this from outside the window, scales up the sheer wall of the building to the roof saying he's going to change out of his Spidey costume because he can't wait to see and talk to Betty. Off panel, we see Betty's thinking the same. She asks Jameson if Peter Parker's dropped off any photos lately and Jameson snaps. He says, no, I haven't seen him. He's probably too lazy to work, just like everyone else I get stuck with. Minutes later, we see the Goldenrod Kid, SJB suit, orange tie, enter Jameson's office. Peter's a freelance photographer who never knocks. His pics of Spidey must be amazing because nobody walks into JZA's office without knocking. Pete catches sight of Betty, already back to work, having cleaned up the stack of papers for replacement toss, and he says he's been waiting to hear from her. But JJ's not having it. Cigar in his mouth, he tells Pete they're in an office, not a social club, and Pete can enter his office only when he has picks before telling the young goldenrod to get, I get. Betty, all smiles, tells Pete that she'll see him later and to call her at home. Page three opens to a caption box. Meanwhile, at different places throughout the nation, moving from city to city like the elusive marauder he is, the awesome Dr. Octopus attempts some of the most colorful crimes ever perpetrated. In the long panel beneath the caption box, we see Dr. Octopus in the green suit from the cover, pulling off heist that took the big man and entire crime family to complete alone. We see 008 on the top of a speeding armored car first, his metal arms on the corners of the roof as the truck speeds beneath an overpass. And Octopus is saying the truck is no match for his power. He's gonna peel that tin lid back like a sardine can. Next we see him beneath a purple helicopter. L1 and R1 attached to the wheels of the airship and Oct says the police are onto him now so he can't use the same trick twice. But with all those arms, he's a master of sleight of hand and has plenty of tricks. We see him crouched on an awning above a bank entrance next as R2 snatches a bag of money from the hands of a brown suited bank teller while two police officers look on helpless. He flees the scene, climbing to the top of a red water tower, and we know Ox fully accepted his role as a supervillain because now he's monologuing out loud. He says that he has to continue robbing and stealing so Spider-Man will attack him again. In the next panel, he takes a seat atop the water tower and continues. I know I'm stronger than he is. I know that I'll destroy him when next we meet. But so long as he lives, I'll never be truly safe. I've got to force him to fight me again. But why hasn't he followed me? I've given him every chance, all the bait he needs. Perhaps I'll have to return to New York and find him. Ock wants Spidey to chase him across America like he's Carmen Sandiego. The next panel, we see why Spidey hasn't gone after Dr. Octopus. He's sitting at the kitchen table, a glass of water and stack of books piled high above it, pencil in his left hand, orange button up on his back, and Aunt May is standing over him, olive green sweater, blue dress. She has a hand on his forehead and she's telling him he has to stay home because she thinks he's getting a cold. 
And Pete thinks, if only I could head out west where Doc Ock was last reported. But I have the money for the fair and my intern exams are coming up soon. And Aunt May would never let me go anyway. Pete's got finals, a cold, and probably doesn't think he can hitchhike all the way across the country on the outside of a plane. So he's grounded for more reasons than one. The next day. The final panel, we see the Brand X kid himself, Flash Thompson, holding a newspaper. He's wearing a bumblebee yellow sweater with triangles running across it horizontally. We have two brunies here, a boy wearing a dark red blazer and a girl in a blue dress, and this here in a red v-neck blouse. The goldenrod kid is walking up to the group, SJB suit, of course, goldenrod vest and red tie. He's got a book under his arm and he's making his way towards school. He's hoping someday Dr. Octopus returns to New York so they can have their rematch when he spots the gang and wonders what they're reading about. Flash says the Daily Bugle is still calling Spider-Man a fake and a coward and adds that he'd like to see Jameson go one-on-one -on -one with the one-man hands team. And Flash may be brighter than I've given him credit for. Page 4 opens to a close-up of a spider in the paper and Flash points out the propaganda saying, Look, the Bugle even has a picture of a spider trying to show how dangerous they are and claiming that Spider-Man must be dangerous too. While someone else, probably Bruni Boy, says Bookworm Parker's walking up and says they should see what Pete knows about spiders. The next panel we see half man, half amazing Pete rock in the foreground as he walks past Liz and Flash. And as usual, when the gang brings up spiders, men, red, blue, or anything else his neurotic mind thinks can tie him to the webhead, Pete Rock thinks he needs to be careful of his response before saying he hates spiders, that they're ugly and icky, and he'd rather not even talk about them. Man called spiders icky. Flash jumps on a chance to bust Pete's chops, saying, Know what I like about you, Parker? You're such a rugged, fearless he-man. As Liz watches from behind him, smiling, the bell for class rings and the kids make their way into the building, one of them saying to escort Parker in by the arm because he may step on an anthill and faint. Pete, standing in a red negative space, thinks, Go ahead and laugh, you burgering clown. Someday everyone will realize that it's only the people who are inferior themselves that keep picking on others. How about that? I'm beginning to sound like a teenage Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a prominent American evangelist and ordained Southern Baptist minister from North Carolina who was internationally known during his lifetime for his work in spreading Christianity throughout the world and fighting for racial equality during the civil rights movement here in the United States. His work led to him working side by side and building a close personal friendship with Martin Luther King Jr., becoming a spiritual advisor to several presidents from Eisenhower to Barack Obama and receiving a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I can see how if you're Pete, one part heroically righteous, one part sensation of the nation, a man like Billy Graham would be a person you'd know in Parrot. Back to. Not long afterwards, Betty Brent receives a mysterious phone call. We see Betty at her desk in a Daily Bugle, the receiver of her phone pressed against her ear, and she looks a little afraid. She says that this is Betty and asks who's there. She waits a moment and asks why doesn't the person answer. On the other end of the line, we see who's calling, and I'm sure for Betty, outside of Blackie Gaxton, it's the last person she wants to hear from, as we see a metal three-pronged arm holding a receiver, Dr. Octopus. From off-panel, Dr. Octopus says, Good. Now that I know she is back working for the Daily Bugle, I'll be able to use her as bait to catch Spider-Man. He risked his life to help her once before, so why not again? And we get a caption box letting us know this happened back in Amazing Spider-Man number 11. We rode the crazy train on that issue in the What If Bennett Was Definitely In It episode here on Me and My Friend Pete. Ock's not a dumb man. Spider-Man hurled his body, 165 pounds of muscle, at Dr. Octopus's head in the last issue for touching Betty. So Ock's banking on the golden liability, playing hero a second time. This reminds me of the Dark Knight when Joker snatched up Rachel Dawes after seeing the way Batman abandoned a whole room of hostages to dive out of the window to save her. To the most ruthless of villains, their beef with heroes always blows over to the people, specifically the women in the hero's life. Off on a tangent for a bit, snatching women up and harming them is a trope so often used in comic books that it has been labeled by the great comics writer Gail Simone as women in refrigerators. 
She coined the term after reading Green Lantern number 54, where Green Lantern Kyle Rayner's girlfriend was killed and shoved into his refrigerator by a villain named Major Force. I've added a link to the website Gail Simone created chronicling this practice of harming women for shock value in comics in the show notes on the Patreon page. Back to the next panel, we see Betty, her left hand to her cheek. Whenever Betty's worried, she's going to throw a hand up to her cheek. And she's thinking, he hung up. It sounded like, oh no, that's impossible. It can't be. Jameson, standing behind her, watching her, tells her to hang up the phone and get back to work because he doesn't pay her to daydream. But it's to note, he looks a lot more put together than we've seen him in the last issue and a half. He has a brown suit on, red tie, and he's back to being the dapper paper magnate. He won't admit it, but we can see from this alone that Betty makes his life infinitely easier. Then, towards the end of the day, the Goldenrod Kid has returned to Jameson's office and Jameson tells him nothing's changed. If he doesn't have pictures, he needs to get out. Pete apologizes and says he's here to pick up Betty. Betty says she'll be with Pete as soon as he finishes the letter she's working on. But suddenly, a mocking, menacing form appears at the window. And we see the one-man hands team leap into the window, his metallic arms bracing on the frame and floor, as he calls Pete Sonny and tells him not to hold his breath because he has other plans for Betty. Pete screams, Dr. Octopus, here in New York! Stepping into the room as Betty says that she knew it was Octopus on the phone. Jameson doesn't say anything at all, but somewhere between this panel and the last, he's rolled up his sleeves and is taking a step toward Octopus to put himself between Betty and the danger. Jameson's a busy man, and if Ox snatches Betty up again, he's going to be back to being way past busy enough, and JJ's not having that. It's a beautiful panel. But the beauty continues dangerously onto page 5 as we see a metal tentacle wrap around the waist of the frightened Betty Brant and lift her from the floor. Ox shows a little kidnapper chivalry saying, Don't be alarmed, young lady. You will not be harmed. But nobody believes that. If you recall, Ock made what I can only classify as an unwanted advance on Betty last issue in Bennett's apartment, pinning her against the wall with the metal ones. And she hasn't forgotten it either. She screams, No! No! Don't! You can't! Help! Then, before Peter or Jonah Jameson can make a move, we see Pete and JJ lifted from the floor by the waist by two more metal arms, as Octopus says that just in case either of the two men try anything heroic, this will stop them from interfering. And man, if JJ isn't wearing his big boy pants today, he screams, Don't just dangle there, Parker. Tell him who I am. That is John Jonas swinging past his knees, Jameson Jr., the Tie Raider. I think to JJ's credit, it needs to be said that he self-admitted to thinking he isn't as brave as Spidey, but Jameson's pretty brave when the pressure's on, always. He's got his jaw into an uproar at Electro and the Vulture, so this isn't out of character. Pete's not worried about letting Dr. Octopus know who JJ is, though. He's got his own problems. In the next panel, we see Pete Rock held in the air around the waist, his right fist clenched, his left hand open, Spidey sends a blaze as he thinks, I can't fight Batman. Not in front of Betty and Jameson. It would give my identity away. I gotta bide my time. In the fourth panel, Ock, holding a raised fleshy fist above his head, his three hostages dangling in his metallic grip, makes his demand. He says no one will be hurt if they listen. He tells JJ to put an ad in the bugle, telling Spider-Man to contact him. When Spidey does, Ock says, he wants JJ to tell Spidey that he's grabbed Betty Brant and taken her to Coney Island, saying if Spidey wants her, he has to come get her alone. Before dumping JJ and Pete onto their butts unceremoniously in the next panel, he says JJ can send one photographer to Coney Island to capture pictures of Spidey's defeat. And Jameson says he's sending Parker before he even touches the floor, as Pete wonders how he's going to finesse being both Spider-Man and Peter Parker at the same time for this. In the final panel, Dr. Octopus climbs out of the window, scaling the sheer out wall with Betty trapped in the clutches of R1 as Jameson and Spidey stare up at him. Octopus says Spider-Man has to show up alone, and if the police come, he lets our imaginations run wild as to what he'll do, but my mind is already on refrigerators. Jameson says he's got to print an extra, and he hopes Spidey sees it. 
As Pete screams, Betty, don't be afraid. Spider-Man will save you. Another masterpiece page from Letters to Art. Triple S working right now and they're just getting started. And then, as a special lecture edition of The Bugle hits the newsstands. Jameson, standing behind his desk, is pointing at Pete's back to open page six, and he's telling the Golden Rod kid to get down to Coney Island and bring plenty of film. He says if Pete botches this assignment, he'll have his high. And Pete, a close hand to his forehead, heading towards the door, says that nothing could keep him away. But he thinks he's feeling kind of woozy, and that Aunt May may be right, that he may really be coming down with something. But like Pete said, nothing will keep him away from this action. He leaves the office, finds an alley, and is back in Jameson's office on a sheer wall in no time. A daily bugle clucks in his fist as he pops the sign of the spider on Jameson, casting the paper magnate in its red glow. He asks Jameson what he wants, saying that he saw the notice in the extra. And Jameson, even knowing he needs Spidey's help, refuses to be civil. He screams, You! Turn off that blasted beam! I'm not impressed with your phony theatrics! Betty Brent has been captured by Dr. Octopus! Then, after Jameson has explained, Spidey scaling the Daily Bugle to get to the roof and head for Coney Island when he realizes it's harder for him to stick to walls than usual. He thinks he must really be getting sick. Meanwhile, J. Jonah in front of a red negative space, his hand to his mouth, admits that Pete's got skills and is his best photographer, but he doesn't want to take the chance of the kid botching this job before deciding to head to Coney Island himself. He grabs his bowler, throws his blazer on, and double times it out of the office monologuing. It's midwinter, so the amusements will all be shut down for the season. I'll make sure that Dr. Octopus doesn't see me, but I'll have a chance to observe whatever happens firsthand. And atop the highest roller coaster at the amusement park. In reality, Betty, hands tied behind her back, is on top of a Ferris wheel trapped at its highest point. Octopus scaling it to meter. He says Spider-Man has to have seen the paper by now and should be arriving at any moment for his final battle. And Betty asks, what if he doesn't show up? In the final panel, we see 008 holding Betty around the waist with R1 as he descends the ferris wheel. And I'm starting to worry his human arms are going to atrophy. The only thing they've done this issue is bald fist and hold one money bag. The guy is wholly dependent on the R's and the L's. Regardless, in response to Betty asking what happens if Spidey doesn't show, he says, That would be too bad, my dear, for you. And now, I'll lower you to the ground so the photographer can easily get good pictures of my victory over that masked fool. Those pictures, for the world to see, will be Spider-Man's greatest humiliation. To Ock's credit, he understands Spider-Man a lot better than most villains the webhead's faced so far. He knows the webhead, despite being a hero, is pretty prideful, and the only thing worse than beating our hero is embarrassing him as well. And that's what Dr. Octopus wants to do. He wants to embarrass the golden liability. He wants to make Spider-Man look bad for the whole world to see. Is, is this, this your sensation, sensation of, of your nation? nation? Look at him. That's what I imagine he's thinking. Ock drops Betty off on the ground to open page 7 and turns to climb higher ground saying Parker's not here yet and he better show or he'll live to regret it. Betty, damsel, never in distress, begins using her fingernails to dig into the rope binding her wrist thinking if she keeps trying she can free herself while Doctopus isn't looking. The next panel we see the golden liability suited and booted entering the Coney Island amusement park and right away we can see something is off. Why? Spidey is on foot. Yeah, I mean on the ground. Spidey hardly ever walks along the street, so this is already a bad sign. A bad sign confirmed as he presses his hand against the wall of a roller coaster to steady himself. He says, I can hardly stand. My feet feel like rubber. Of all the time for me to get a virus attack. But I can't let it stop me. I've got to save Betty. Gotta find Dr. Octopus. He continues into the next panel, a profile shot of Spidey in a light blue negative space. If only I didn't feel so weak. If I could just lie down for, wait, there he is. I've got to go through with it now. 
The next panel, we see Betty in a shadow, having freed herself from the ties that bind, sprinting towards the entrance to the amusement park towards the legendary Cyclone roller coaster. Damsel on the move. Fun fact, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, and I know no lifelong New Yorkers, myself included, who have ever ridden the Cyclone. If you have and you're a lifelong New Yorker, let me know in the comments, because you're a braver person than us, and I want to tell you so personally, because that thing creaks on the breeze from a whistle. Back too. Ah, glancing over his shoulder, spots Betty making a mad dash for the exit and screams he's going to catch her, and this time, he won't be so forgiving. He turns and begins chasing after her, but we're in a goldenrod negative space, so you know Spider-Man, the golden liabilities, not having it, and he leaps at Dr. Octopus thinking, ah, Carpe nunca. Translation, it's now or never, while grabbing Doc Ock around the shoulders, screaming he's got him. In the final panel, we see Spidey's gotten the hard part out of the way. He's in close where Doc Ock's metal arms can't reach him as easily, and thinking he's gotta knock Dr. Octopus out with one punch, because whatever's wrong with him has him feeling weak, so he's not going to hold back. He can't afford to hold back. Betty is in danger. He's gotta give it all he got. He swings, chin-checking 008 with an uppercut, a one-hitter quitter, a Sunday punch, a little lunch. But the Biff's a whiff and barely lifts Ock's chin as Spidey thinks, Oh, no! I tried my best, but my spider strength is gone. It was just a weak, meaningless punch. He hardly felt it. And Ox not impressed either. He screams, What sort of stun is this, Spider-Man? I know you can hit harder than that. If this is some sort of trick, it'll do you no good. You won't be given a second chance. And Ock knows Spidey knows how to throw a punch because Spidey knocked Ock out cold. In their second scrap. At this point, if you count it, they fought three times already, and Ock knows by personal experience, firsthand, literally, that Spider-Man has one rule: fist. Swing him if you got him. And when he swing him, it's sledgehammers coming. So Ock's a little bit confused right now. We turn the page and we're on the Infinity, infinity, page. infinity page. Page eight. Just in time to see Doc Ock with the worst boxing form ever snap Spidey's head back with a right cross in his fleshy hand as R2 wraps around the wrist of the wall crawler. And Spidey's reeling. His spider strength gone. It doesn't matter that Ock doesn't have form because Pete is now a kid with no powers and can barely stay on his feet from the blow. And Ock's getting pissed. He tells Spidey to fight back, that he doesn't want his victory watered down. This reminds me of the scene in the movie Troy when Hector, played by Eric Bana, trips over the rock and Achilles tells him, Get up! Get up, Prince of Joy! No rock is going to steal my glory. Right? Like, I want to beat you at your best. Get up. I'm not going to take advantage of you this way. Fight back. And that's how Ock is on it right now. He clocks Spidey with another right cross in the next panel, calling him a human punching bag. And Spidey thinks another blow like that, and I'm finished. But Spidey's wrong. He passes out right there. This is the first time Spidey has ever been knocked unconscious in a fight. And of course it has to be the one-man hands team to do it. We get a gorgeous dynamic panel and a goldenrod negative space next. The moment right before the cover of the issue. As Dr. Octopus holds Spidey up with his metallic arms. L1 tugging at our hero's mask. He says he can't believe it. That Spidey isn't even struggling as he removes his mask. Betty, J. Jonah, and two police officers run up. Betty pointing out the accent saying Octopus has beaten Spider-Man. Jameson's response lets us know he may hate the webhead, but he recognizes the skills. He says, So quickly? How? And where's Parker? He should be photographing this. As the two officers say, it's a good thing Betty called them. In the final panel, we see the cover of this issue up close as L1 removes the mask from Pete's face, bringing the hero's most neurotic fear to life. But this moment may work to Spider-Pete's benefit. Because Spidey didn't show his usually amazing prowess with his hands team, the two people most likely to believe he's Spider-Man may now never believe he's Spider-Man. But I don't think that's any consolation to half-man, half-amazing Spider-Pete in this moment. And Ox says he knew it couldn't be Spider-Man. And you already know, Betty's nervous, she has a hand to her cheek, as she thinks Pete did this for her, and he could have been killed. Jameson's unimpressed. 
He screams, the fool. I ordered him to take pictures of Octopus, not try to be a hero. But the final word is a question from a cop, who hearing JJ and staring at a 15-year-old kid just beaten unconscious asks, you mean you knew Octopus was here? To close the page. Nine opens with Spider-P being tossed into Jameson and the police officer unceremoniously as Dr. Octopus screams, bah, Shout out take to your puny hero. He's of no interest to me. It's the real Spider-Man I'm after. He pushes off the ground with the twos and in no time is racing along the Cyclone roller coaster saying he was sure Spider-Man would show up. He thinks the police might have scared Spidey off and says he'll find him no matter what and won't rest till he smashes him. We shift back to Spidey and company and see Jameson on his butt again, his bowler hat at his side as the police officer rounds on him screaming, Jameson, next time you withhold information from us, it'll go hard with you. If you had told us about this, we would have set a trap for Octopus and caught him by now. But you thought more of an exclusive story than anything else. And the officer's right. Jameson's main point against Spider-Man has always been that he interferes in matters better left to law enforcement. And now, he's just been caught doing the exact same thing. Maybe worse, because the life of two minors were seriously at risk. But JJ's always been do as I say, not as I do. And I imagine he doesn't trust the police as much as he expects them to do what he says as a wealthy taxpayer. I don't trust them or expect them to do what I say as a working class taxpayer. So I understand half of what he may be thinking. Abolish the police. Back to... The next panel, we see Spider-Pete, his head cradled in Betty's hands, his own left pressed to his forehead, the cop kneeling down in front of him, and JJ in the background, his hand on the brim of his bowler. Betty says, Oh, Peter, Peter, you dear, foolish, wonderful boy. Why did you do it? If anything had happened to you. While Jameson, in the sake of self-interest, thinks, I better not yell at Parker now in front of the police. They're angry enough at me now. This sure was one big flop. He doesn't care at all that Pete's hurt. He wants to save face. I shouldn't have done this and I have to be quiet right now. But if the police officer wasn't here, I'd tear that kid a new one. That's what he's thinking. The police officer commends Pete, saying he must be one brave kid to tackle Dr. Octopus impersonating Spidey like that and tells Betty he'll escort Pete home. Hours later, at home. We see Pete in bed asleep with a fretful expression on his face. Aunt May is at his bedside, her hand in Peter's hair, staring down at her favorite person in the world. She says a policeman brought him home and told her he fainted. Her mommy sense on infinity, she says she knew he was coming down with something. The doctor, gray hair, olive blazer, horn rim glasses, same guy who came to check on Aunt May when she was ill. So the family doctor, we'll call him Dr. Fam for future reference, says Peter has a 24 hour virus. Packing his stethoscope away in his doctor's bag, Fam says the virus makes a person as weak as a kitten for a day, but Pete should be fine by morning. And that's good, because Pete's having fever dreams tonight. As Peter sleeps, his rest is broken by a troubled dream. And we see Spider-Man chastising a sleeping Peter, hovering over Pete in a white cloud of dream smoke. He says, what are you, some kind of nut or something? You should have your head examined for appearing as Spider-Man when you were so weak. You know viruses are the one thing even your spider strength can't resist. Pete, in shades of dreaming blue, replies, but I was so worried about Betty. So worried. That's the girl he loves. We've seen Pete go to great lengths to save Flash Thompson, a kid he despises. So you gotta know he wasn't gonna wait around for someone else to rescue Betty. That's his girl Friday. And on top of that, when did Spider-Man ever reference that? Viruses were the one thing that made him weak. This was never spoken about. We know Johnny the Human Torch got a virus and his powers started acting up. Coincidentally, in the first appearance of Dr. Octopus. That's the We Didn't Start the Fire episode here on Me and My Friend Pete. Then comes the next morning, more than 24 hours after the virus has struck. And we see the Goldenrod Kid backflipping out of his bed. 
He's not sick anymore, but his pajamas are. My man is wearing the finest silk pajamas. Mid-flip, he's saying he feels like a zillion bucks again and goes on to say, I got the old spider strings back. The old zingaroo. The old zingaroo. How do you do? Ten opens to Pete's back to us as he gets suited and booted in his Spidey costume. His mask is resting on top of a white bundle. He's saying he knows Aunt May saw the costume inside and he needs to move fast. As Aunt May screams as she hears him moving and she's coming upstairs because she needs to talk to him. She enters his room wearing a green one-piece dress and pink apron with a wagging left finger. She says, I received a strange costume from the police this morning and I heard what really happened to you last night. How could you possibly take such a chance impersonating that dreadful Spider-Man? And Pete, the white bundle in his hand, says he'll never do it again and he's taking the costume outside right now to burn it hoping she doesn't guess that the bundle is now filled with rags. Later at school. We get Flash Thompson in the foreground wearing a yellow polo shirt, nice shirt. He's standing next to Bruni's boy and girl and pointing over his shoulder at Pete, who's walking into school, SJB suit, orange tie. Flash screams, hey look, here comes a big hero, Fearless Parker in the flesh. Both Bruni smile and Pete thinks Flash is never gonna let him live this down. But who's Flash to talk? When he impersonated Spidey back in ASM number 5, The Golden Liability, Always Another Day episode here on Me and My Friend Pete, he was captured by Doctor Doom and begged for his life without even getting a punch off. Liz rushes up to Pete wearing a red blouse and brown skirt. She asks Pete why he would ever bother to impersonate Spider-Man. Pete, his head down in the next panel, Liz's hand on his shoulder says he doesn't want to talk about it if she doesn't mind. But Liz is impressed. Smiling, she says it was the most wonderful thing she's ever heard of, while Flash waves a dismissive hand behind her, telling her that Parker didn't really expect to run into Dr. Octopus, he was just clout chasing for kicks. And Liz snaps! Rounding on Flash in the next panel, she says, Let me tell you something, Flash Thompson. As far as I'm concerned, Peter Parker proved he has enough courage to match his brains. And as for you, my dear ex-boyfriend, you've got neither. As Pete watches in shock, wondering what changed with Liz because she never knew he was alive before. And everybody's in shock right now. Flash the most as he asks Liz what she's mad at him for. Meanwhile, the angry Dr. Octopus rips the newspapers to shreds in a fit of savage fury. And we see Dr. Octopus sitting on a crate in his hideout. Every hand, fleshy or pincered, has shredded newspaper in it. He screams, you're making a laughing stock of me, saying that I was fooled by a teenager. Well, they'll all be laughing out of the other sides of their mouths before I'm through with them. He is going to lose it. Everything he does to bring Spider-Man down only brings more embarrassment upon himself. Since defeating Spider-Man the first time, Spidey is giving him L's left and right, whether it's punches to the jaw or punches to his reputation. Octopus must hate this kid. Eleven opens to him snapping a wooden beam in two with his metal arm as he screams Spider-Man won't be able to hide from him any longer. And I think business is about to pick up. Doc Ock leaves his secret basement lair in the next panel, racing up the street on his metal arm. A man in a JJP suit spots him and decides to cross the street. Doc Ock screams that he's through hiding and today will be a day that the people will never forget because today all New Yorkers are going to learn the power of Dr. Octopus. Later, at the outskirts of the zoo, in New York, there's only one zoo worth mentioning as simply the zoo, so I know we're in the Bronx and we get a gorgeous panel of two male lions and a leopard moving as big cats do. Ditko is amazing. These are beautifully drawn lions and this leopard is gorgeous. What can't this man do? Shout out through the ether to Steve Ditko. Always, always working. But this is dangerous because Doctopus freed them from their cages. The leopard in particular is snarling and moving toward a fleeing crowd of men. 
The guy in the back wearing a full blood red suit screams, Run! The wild beast are loose! Dr. Octopus set them all free! Help! Somebody help! And somebody called 911. Seconds later, you know no other than Joe and Tomas arrived on the scene. We see Tomas holding one end of the net as he screams, Careful, Joe! This baby's a killer! Joe, holding the other end of the net, dies at the leopard saying, We can't afford to be careful, Bill. Too many lives may be at stake. So now, Tomas's name is William Tomas, and we see the two police officers catch the leopard in the net. It's a great panel in a goldenrod negative space. Meanwhile, a short distance away. Speaking of goldenrod, we see none other than Peter Parker, the goldenrod kid himself, looking over his shoulder as Liz Allen chases behind him, and chasing her, the brand X kid himself, Flash Thompson. This is a train of chase. Liz is screaming at Pete to hold up. She says she wants to walk home with him because she has to ask him something, and Flash is upset. Scowling, he tells Liz he thought they were going bowling this afternoon, as Pete thinks, This is nuts! Liz wouldn't give me a trouble before. But now, she's following me around like a lovesick child. My, how the turntable! Pete doesn't have time for this new energy. Betty's his girl and Pete's not stepping out. He races around the corner to open page 12 and leaping up, grabs a flagpole and swings himself to the roof of a nearby building. It's another great panel and makes me wish Spidey fought crime with that best ever agility in a suit. Back on the ground, Liz, her hands on her shoulders, tells Flash she'd thank him to stop following her around. And Flash tries to remind her that she said Pete isn't her type. Spidey, suited and booted on the rooftop above the two, isn't paying any attention to Liz tell Flash off, off panel. He's more focused on the shouting up ahead and races towards it. But Liz tells Flash, Well, perhaps I've grown mature enough to realize a boy needs more than a football letter to really be a man. The goldenrod kid has wooed Liz Allen, but he doesn't have time to process this. We see a lion on a high platform in the next panel poised to leap down onto a crowd of three men. The first two men are running and screaming for help, but the third, a guy in a green suit, matching hat, Red bow tie is standing with his arms wide beneath the lion like he's trying to commit suicide by mauling. And the lion's about to give him what he wants. It leaps, but that can't happen. Spidey swings in on a web line, mounting the lion from behind, screaming he's never ridden anything like this before, but there's always a first time. He wraps the lion in his leg before dropping it into a net held by the police in the next panel. One of the police officers thanks Spider-Man, saying they've had their hands full with all of the escaped beasts. Spidey lands in the final panel after releasing the lion in front of a trio of fleeing men, screaming, Escape Beast? That means there's more? Uh-oh, here's another one now! As a large black bear advances toward him on its hind legs, I imagine these animals all hopped onto the five train from the Bronx Zoo, the bear probably hopped the train, and rode into the city to wreak havoc. So 13 opens to Spidey leaping straight up into the air, shouting, There, big fella! That webbing around your jaws and your claws will keep you harmless till the police put you back where you belong! As he webs the maw of the bear shut to go along with its already webbed up paws. Spidey leaps onto a sheer wall next, climbing up to meet a large brown gorilla perched on a ledge of the building above him. Octopus has caused chaos with these freed animals. Spidey calls the gorilla fuzzy and says he'll be right with him. But the gorilla is channeling his King Kong energy and won't wait for action. It leaps down at Spidey in the next panel, causing the webhead to lose his balance and fall from the sheer wall. Spidey grabs a flagpole on his way down in an underhand huh. grip and spinning around on it rapidly says, if he's ever president, he's going to make flagpole day a national holiday. The gorilla lands on the flagpole and lumbers towards Spider-Man, whose right foot is already backed up against the edge of the pole as he screams. Say, little friend, you've got this backwards. I'm the one who's supposed to be chasing you before doing a corkscrew flip from the edge of the flagpole and over the gorilla's outstretched hands. Put another page of me gushing on the record book. This is a beautiful corkscrew flip. Ditko, working. And Spidey slipped out of the way and the gorilla's fallen off of the edge. Spidey webs up the falling gorilla to open page 14, 
hoping his web can hold until the police get a net under the impersonation calm. The next panel we see the webbing has held as a group of people stand around while the gorilla is lowered onto the police net. The officer holding the net stage right says, Well that's the last of them. Boy, that Spider-Man is a poor man's Frank Buck. Frank, bring him back alive, Buck was a famous American hunter, author, actor, director, and producer. But all of these titles were secondary to him being America's foremost animal collector. A title that saw him bring well over 100,000 live specimens back to the United States for zoos and circuses. My man was the crocodile hunter before the crocodile hunter. Nigel Thornberry before Nigel Thornberry. So Spidey could have a career in the catch and trap life if he wanted, but Spidey can't pursue it now. The second cop says the animals are all accounted for, but one, Dr. Octopus, is still on the loose. And speaking of Dr. Octopus. Octopus is rampaging through Midtown in a beautiful panel. In the foreground, we see a police officer with his hands raised screaming at the frightened and fleeing crowd to get back and stay clear that the police will handle this. A guy in an SJB colored suit, matching hat, tan tie, and maroon shoes, those are some fancy shoes, screams that Dr. Octopus is flipping cars like they're made of balsa wood as he sprints away from the scene looking over his shoulder. And the scene, ah, right fist raised as usual, is hovering above the ground in the middle of the street on the twos as the ones lift the lime green car by its bumper like, well, balsa wood. The whole time, Hawk is screaming. I won't stop until I find Spider-Man. Do you hear me? Bring me Spider-Man. He wants his five minutes with the webhead or he's going to turn this city upside down. Hawk scales a wall next and stopping behind a building sign that reads Leaded Ink, grabs the sign with the ones and screaming Spider-Man better show up soon, pushes the signage from its brackets in the building towards the street below. There's a crowd of at least 30 people below. Ock is back on his murder game. But suddenly, a deceptively strong web streaks out towards the falling sign and... We see a large spider's web snag the signage before it can crash to the ground as Spidey screams from off panel that this webbing will hold the sign until the police arrive. We see that everybody's waiting for this fight to jump off. 15 opens with Jameson and Betty watching from inside JJ's corner office through the window. And JJ is tirading. Well, wow. So Spider-Man finally came out of hiding at last. Unless it's that idiotic Peter Parker again. Betty replies, Don't say that, Mr. Jameson. It mustn't be Peter. It just mustn't. And I feel like if she knew it was Peter this time, Betty would take his head off. She's had enough of all this action-packed lifestyle. She doesn't want Pete anywhere near it. But Jameson and Betty Brand are both right. It is the real Spider-Man, and it's also Peter Parker. Although this time, nobody suspects the truth. Spidey came in working and nobody believes that could be Peter Parker now. Look how he embarrassed himself and look how that embarrassment has worked to his benefit. Never ever think that a loss is just a loss. It can always be a lesson and sometimes, like this, it can be a gift. He has separated the Peter Parker from the Spider-Man so completely that now he can operate closely as a photographer for a man who hates Spider-Man without any suspicion. This beating, those two hooks that Dr. Octopus gave him that knocked him out, they were a blessing in disguise. And he got to get some sleep. He was sick, he needed it anyway. But he's back on top, so let's get back to. Spidey lands on a water tower across from Dr. Octopus who screams Spider-Man at last as the golden liability throws down the gauntlet. All right, Octopus, you've been asking for another tangle with me, and now you're gonna get it. Translation, it's time for the showdown. And we got action. Octopus sends all four arms flying at Spider-Man, obliterating the water tower, and calling Spidey a web-shooting freak, saying this time he's gonna show our hero no mercy. And Spidey replies, what do you mean this time? A Florence Nightingale you've never been. Florence Nightingale was a British nurse, social reformer, and statistician, best known as the founder of modern nursing. 
Her work in the field revolutionized nursing practices, mainly in the areas of sanitation and patient care, where she spread the idea that safe and compassionate treatment of patients was just as important as the medicine they were given or surgeries that were performed on them. Her work shattered the stereotype of nursing as an undesirable profession in its time and inspired not only working in middle-class women, but even upper-class women ben to Stiller. pursue careers in nursing, now considered through her work to be a noble profession. Of course, that extends to men today, as I've seen plenty of male nurses. So one time for Florence Nightingale, back to. So Spidey's right, because there isn't anyone farther from who Nightingale was than Dr. Octopus. And a few stories below. We see Jameson drenched in the water from the water tower, shaking an angry fist, screaming that it has to be the real Spider-Man because Peter Parker wouldn't have the stones to soak him like this. But JJ can't fathom the degree of my friend Pete's nerves. Meanwhile, Betty says that Ock is bigger and much more vicious than ever before. She wonders what chance Spider-Man really has of defeating him. As Betty doubts, Spidey is climbing in the next panel, a large goldenrod chimney stack. And that's an awful color for a chimney stack. It's not going to hide the soot at all. But that's my worry, not Spidey's. He's thinking, those blamed arms of his make him stronger than I am. How am I going to figure out a way to defeat him once and for all? In the final panel, we see Doc Ock, 10 feet behind our hero, running up the stack in his brown constructs, screaming that Spidey has no place to run. The chase is on, and it's almost over. Spidey waits at the top of the smokestack as Ock ascends it to open 16. 008 says, I can afford to take my time to relish this moment. You're completely trapped. And Spidey says, sure, sure. Watch this, before webbing the lip of the smokestack and jumping off the side with the web strand in his hand, screaming, Geronimo! As Ock looks on, stunned, he forgot Spidey is fearless. Good, Spidey didn't. He swings rapidly around the chimney, pinning Dr. Octopus with his ever-extending web line to the smokestack as he does, saying, Not bad for a little trap, Spider-Man, eh? But Doc Ock is the former foremost in atomic research. He knows all he has to do is make the webbing slack around him, and he'll get free. Saying he's underestimated Spidey, as he often does, he pushes away from the smokestack with his metal arm before pressing himself flat against it. The webbing goes slack and free once more. He says he won't make the mistake a second time and resumes his hunt. And so, the fantastic chase begins again. And we get a beautiful panel of Spidey on agility. Best ever. My brush, please. Let me paint this picture. We got Ock standing on the edge of a brown rooftop, his arms stretched out in front of him. Between him and Spider-Man, there's a gray rooftop with a billboard on its roof. The billboard has three light fixtures mounted on its top. I'm guessing so it can be seen at nighttime. But Spidey's seen them now. He's looped the first pole, leapt to the third, and released it, looping around the second pole, flies forward, corkscrews in the air, and grabs a steel pole jutting out of the side of a building. Shades of Simone Biles on page 16. I like it. Octopus, gripping the side of a building with his right tentacles, sends the left chasing Spidey, who leapfrogs the chimney to avoid them. Octopus says Spidey may be more agile, the most agile, but Octopus can cover more ground, and he's tireless. Spidey replies, Guess you're right, Ock. If all your boasting doesn't tire you out, I guess nothing will. 17 opens to Spidey on the chimney on one foot as Octopus swings around a water tower using R1 to cut him off. The remaining three arms, of course, barreling towards the webhead. Ock says he'll prove he can do more than boast, and cracks the webhead with an L1 hook, sending him falling backwards from the chimney. Riddle me this, Jackman. Yeah? What's Spidey's agility on? That's easy. Best ever. Spidey lands into a handstand in the next panel as Ox arms give chase and realizing he's got nowhere to go but down, Spidey plunges headfirst into the air shaft in the next panel thinking, it's a long chance, but maybe I can get out of his reach in this air shaft. Then I'll figure out a new plan of attack and take the offensive. In free fall now, Spidey webs the opening to the air shaft hoping Octopus didn't see him. But Octopus did. We see his metal arm swarming above the mouth of the shaft. And Spidey thinks his plan is worthless, that he blew it. 
before he remembers who he is. Lowering himself further into the shaft, he stretches the weapon he's holding in his hands until the tension is exactly right before rocketing up through the air shaft in the final panel, screaming, Gingwei, Doc Ock! Spidey shoots out of the shaft to open 18, lunging towards Octopus and grabbing the man around the collar. Ock screams, what the? And Spidey replies, huh, I thought I'd catch you off guard. Well, buddy boy, you're not fighting a weak imitation of Spider-Man now. This time, you're facing the real thing. Before landing in the next panel and judo tossing Dr. Octopus <laughs> over his shoulder, telling 008 that as long as he can be kept off balance, his arms won't do him any good. In the next panel, Spidey, bad, he's in it. He screams, and you know something? There's still no substitute for a good old-fashioned punch in the jaw. Now, is there? Before leaping the 10 feet between him and his nemesis easily and cracking Octopus in the jaw with a hard right. The only reason Oct doesn't fall flat on his back, the ones grabbing a nearby ledge and the floor hold him up horizontally. Insult to injury, as Spidey cracks Oct across the jaw, he says, don't just lie there, answer me. Spidey's not having it. You kidnapped Betty, beat the stuffing out of me in front of my lady and my boss and the police, and violated one of the world's greatest zoos. So Spidey wants answers and he's got two fists and you know the rule, he swung them cause he had them. Octopus from his knees is not done. His tentacles curling in front of him and Spidey, he says the webhead's only got two arms, he's got six, so Spidey was licked from the start. Spidey leaping straight up to avoid R2 has to land quickly on his right foot, leaning backwards to avoid the remaining three arms still closing in on him. But Spidey's tired of this dance and he lunges through the arms both hands in front of him, fingers wide to open page 19. Octopus says it's a good try, but calls Spidey an ineffectual upstart and says that ain't quite good enough, grabbing Spidey by the neck with his fleshy hands. This is the first time since this battle started that Octopus has used his real hands for anything. Spidey, R1 in his right hand, L2 in his left, has no way to guard against Dr. Octopus as they dance dangerously on the ledge of a rooftop. Spidey's left leg out in front of him, his right pressed up against the edge, and Op, sensing the tide turning, starts talking his smack. I don't have to move as quickly as you do. With six arms at my disposal, I can afford to take my time. I always get what I reach for. On the street below in a red negative space, crowd reaction shot. We've got a man in the background, brown hat. He's looking up in silent worry. A man in a green horizontally striped blazer and blue fedora. A blonde woman in a purple blouse, her hands up to her mouth as she stares up with her mouth wide open. And a gray haired guy in a blue blazer and green tie with a brown hat. He is in open mouth astonishment right now. All of these people are in a state of shock, but gray-haired with the blue blazer screams, Look, Dr. Octopus is trying to push Spider-Man off the edge of that roof. And Blue Fedora chimes in. He's doing it. Spider-Man is toppling. Wait, he's holding on to Octopus. They're both falling. Before Spidey and Dr. Octopus crash onto a scaffold below, Spidey starts to say he was willing to go over the side because of his sharper reflexes, but before he can finish, Ox screams, Reflexes, bah! Shout out to what good will they do now? The scaffold cable just snapped. As the left cable of the scaffold snaps, the momentum of the platform is crashing through a nearby skylight. In the final panel, we see the Golden Liability and 008 have landed in an abandoned sculptor's studio. Maybe Alicia Masters, on again, off again girlfriend to none other than Benji Grimm, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing. Sidebar, I just read the thing number one that's being written by the great Walter Mosley, the man who gave the world Easy Rollins and Devil in a Blue Dress, and it's shaping up to be my favorite type of thing tale already. Check it out if you can. Back to. So Spidey hits the floor of Alicia Masters' abandoned studio and all around him, we see sculptures. We see a giant gladiator holding a shield and sword, a large stone head wearing a stoic expression, and a life-size model of an angel, its wings spread wide, dressed in a tunic. What can't Steve Ditko draw doesn't exist. But P has no time to marvel at the art, sculptures or otherwise. 
Octopus is landing on the twos, and he is relentless. He sends L1 after the webhead, who landing huh. on his hands, throws his feet together, and backflips at the same time, kicking the hand racing towards him away. As if the stakes weren't already sky high on the ground below, the two combatants knocked over a bottle of cleaning fluid, and a fire begins to rage between the two on the floor of the sculptor's studio. With Octopus giving chase, Spidey leaps to the arm of the giant gladiator and swinging around the arm to the gladiator's back, calls Octopus a fool for not trying to escape the fire as smoke begins to fill the air. But Octopus, despite eight appendages, is now singular in his focus. He screams, This building is deserted. It's just you and me now. Only one of us will survive. Oct doesn't care if he dies, and he cares even less if Spidey does. The giant stone head, held up on a wooden platform, now engulfed in fire, crashes onto the floor between the two combatants. And Spidey is the bravest, but he's not a fool. He says... Are you so filled with hate that you're willing to die rather than stop our battle? I can escape through any window, but you'll be trapped by some falling sculpture. But Ox refusing to listen. He tells Spidey he's finishing this now. But the fates have another idea. The wooden floor beneath the gladiator statue is weakened from the heat, and it gives way, and the gladiator statue topples forward, landing on Dr. Octopus and pinning the man beneath it from the waist down. Ox screams that he can't lift it, and he's trapped. Next panel, Spidey races towards Ox to help, saying he'll get him out. The floor begins collapsing around him as Dr. Octopus screams for help. We get a beautiful panel of Spidey throwing his hands up as flames rise, roaring in front of him. He thinks, can't get to him. Flames leaping too high, too high. Can't get through. And he's right. These flames are now towering over him. There is no way for Spidey to be heroic and get to this man. And Spidey's got his own problem. His back is against the wall in the final panel. Flames creeping towards him. And Spidey says, what's the matter with you? I've been so worried about Doc Ock, I forgot about myself. This is no bed of roses for me either. How do I get out of here? The self-preservation is real. Spidey tried, but I don't think he's willing to die trying for a man who may die from trying to kill him. Makes sense? 21 open and Spidey's getting science. He get a close up of his hands as he tries to use his weapon, but they give him the Dr. No treatment and he realizes he's empty. He reaches into his utility belt and we get a great close-up of the sign of the spider at the center of his belt, the camera beside it to the left, and the web cartridge holder. He grabs two web cartridges as the flames creep closer to him and says he could change his shooters in his sleep at this point. Locked and loaded, he screams here goes and starts spinning webs. Using his amazing spider web like a virtuoso, playing out just the right amount of fluid at just the right split second, Spider-Man manages to create a flame-proof umbrella for his head, plus some sections of webbing to use as stepping stones for his racing feet. And we see Spidey moving along web platforms he's created on the burning floor, his upper body shielded by the umbrella, his right hand poking from beneath it as he creates his next stepping pad. He bursts through the window of the studio on the final panel towards the building opposite, screaming, made it! I'll cling to the wall of this building next door and swing to safety from here! Spidey web swings onto page 22 as fire engines tear up the street towards the blaze, and he's wondering if they can get to Doc Ock in time. Reaching the street, Spider-Man ducks into a nearby doorway, emerging seconds later as our teenage friend, Peter Parker. My friend Pete, back on the scene. We see Pete enter a crowd of Liz and Flash Thompson. Liz says she was looking for Pete and he missed all the excitement. She only knew. Flash, jerking his thumb behind him, tells Pete to get lost because 008 is still at large and Pete might faint if he sees him. Flash is jealous of the attention Pete's getting from Liz, so I think it's so much for the budding friendship I mentioned two episodes ago. And it's not stressing Pete at all. He's chilling. He says, Why don't you slow the back to the rock you crawl out from under Flash? Like, don't be mad at me. She chose. You mad? You mad at me? Because she chose? You gotta take that up with Liz, fella. 
Or even better, you let her live her life and make her decision and you walk it off. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Go get your fishing pole. Get back to work. Back to the next panel. We see a fireman escorting a bruised and beaten octopus from the burning building as the crowd looks on behind the police line. The firefighter wants no parts of Doc Ock, handing him over to a nearby police officer. I know it's Joe because the cop says, well, we do. We've been itching to get our hands on this character. The next panel, as Pete and the gang look on, we see Joe and Tomas leading the beaten and disgraced villain away. Tomas says, all right, mister, keep moving. We've got a nice cozy cell for you to recuperate in. And Doc Ock, his head down, his fleshy hands handcuffed in front of him, replies, Spider-Man didn't beat me. It was the fire. If not for the fire, everything would have been different. And you know Joe has two cents to give. He says, Sure, sure. Every time you've met Spider-Man, he stopped you cold. But next time will be different. We know. Translation, we don't believe you. You need more people. The next panel, we see Liz leaning towards Pete. One hand on his shoulder, one hand on his chest, covering the knot in his tie. That's an affectionate placement of a hand, I gotta say. And she says, Now then, Peter, what I wanted to ask you was, I'm having a party tonight and... But Pete is long over Liz. He's got a girl that loves him for who he is, and that's who gets his attention right now. He replies, Sorry, Liz. No can do. I've got a date with a certain little brunette tonight, even though she may not know it yet. And walking away from her and Flash in the next panel, he keeps going. I'm sure Flash will be happy to go instead of me. Although I know how boring it must be to have to use all those one-syllable words when you talk to him. Anyway, you deserve each other. For context, Pete has been crushing on Liz since ASM number one. And now, one year later, he is over her. It took him a whole year in the love of someone who genuinely loved him for who he was. And he's going to meet the great Betty Brant and try to take her out tonight. Sorry, Liz. You had your shot. I asked you out. You told me not to call you again. You said you were waiting for Spider-Man and you didn't want me to tie up your line. Do you remember that? Because I remember it. So I'm going to go holler at my baby Betty and you, uh, you take it easy. Remember, one syllable words for the dumb head. That's two, so don't even use that. Flash shakes an angry fist, calling Pete crummy, but Liz, looking over her shoulder at the back of the Goldenrod kid, cuts him off. She says, don't say it, Flash. We rated that after the way we've always treated Peter. At least Liz took this as a lesson to learn, and that's good, because Flash was cruising for another bruising. What were you going to do, run up on Pete? Get knocked out in the street? Say it was an accident again? Just let things go, Flash. Let it go. And later that night, we see Pete in his bedroom in his SJB suit, his back to us, the walls around him blanketed in the sign of the spider. As he says, he's lucky he had the automatic shutter of his camera on. He got great pics of Doc Ock, and JJ paid him a chunk of dough for them. He ends with, Yes, sirree, things are sure looking up for my favorite couple of guys. Namely, me. Pete is feeling himself, and he's got the win. Happy ending. You love to see it. And the issue closes with a caption box beneath his feet. Fooled you, eh? See, we don't always have unhappy endings. Like anyone else, our web-spinning hero has his ups and downs. But if he thinks things are going to stay rosy, it's a good thing he doesn't suspect what's in store for him next-ish. See you then. And we're out. Every time Octopus hits the scene, we get next-level action and Pete going above and beyond what he thinks he's capable of. I love to see it. I think this issue did a great job of maybe answering a question people were asking in the form of, how could Jameson and Betty not know? With this fight, that puts that issue to bed. Peter Parker can't be Spidey in their eyes now. Masterful storytelling. This issue is just amazing to look at truly. It's really in the name, The Amazing Spider-Man, and they never disappoint. The fight between Spidey and Doc Ock is a masterclass in drawing characters in motion, in both open and tense tight spaces. If you can, check out the scene of Spidey and Ock before they tumble over the side of the roof into the sculptor's studio. That's art right there. Liz learned a solid lesson in this issue as well. 
comparison isn't stated, but imagine dating a boy who was captured by accident and is well past shallow and realizing you know a brave, intelligent kid with depth who was willing to take on Dr. Octopus for the girl he loved, who longed for you and you waited too long. I'm excited to see if this adds to the drama of my favorite soap opera, and I'm excited to share it with you when it does. And that's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I've run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week we have the untold tales of Blackest Night number one, a book crammed full of stories focusing on DC's undead apocalypse. The seeds of this story were planted way back in Reign of the Superman and continues through the death and resurrection of the Earth's greatest, arguably, fine, arguably greatest Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your conductor through it all. Join me. Head over to patreon.com slash HSPP and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now for patrons who sign up before we reach issue 25, the season finale of Me and My Friend Pete. You will receive a lapel pin as a thank you for your patronage. If you missed that, you're probably a nut. That's and with all said. that said, I'm thank you so nuts. much for listening. I had a blast. I hope you did too. A very special thanks to the right minders, the key keepers, and the high council. Your support is the engine behind this wonderful crazy train we're on, and I'm truly, truly grateful you let me be the conductor. And to you all I say, please take care, please think of the world, and please be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.